Okay, so we're going to jump right in. Jump right in. I want to tell you where we're going tonight. And where we're going is this idea that worship is central to life with God. Okay? And so um, worship is, is really the centrality of the Christian's life. And um, so if, if we're going to make this statement and we're going we're gonna to recognize this to be true, that worship is central to the life with God, well, what is, what is worship? I mean, I think a lot of people, uh, now I'm not saying that maybe this is the idea that you have, but I mean, a lot of people, if you ask them, especially in the church culture, if you said, what is worship, then we would respond, well, that's what we do at the beginning of the service when we're singing. Like, that's our, that's our worship time. And so, is that worship? Yes. Is that the fullness of what worship is, or is worship more than just that is worship more than just more than just singing and, and so here's the here's the definition of worship worship is uh, honor and homage paid to an object regarded as sacred i'm gonna say that again it's it's honor paid to an object regarded as sacred so essentially it's this it's to ascribe worth or value to something okay and so we're, we're saying this is this is valuable and so if we, we define it like that, then we, come, we can realize and recognize that, hey, worship is more than just a song. Worship is more than something that takes place the first 15, 20 minutes of our, of our service. And, and so because if, if that was the case, then that would mean that we're not worshiping here tonight. But that is not the case. And so if it means to ascribe worth or value to something, that means that it isn't just a Christian thing, okay? Like worship is not just a Christian thing. Worship is a human thing. See, every, everybody that walks planet Earth was created to worship. And so the question isn't, are you worshiping? The question isn't when you see people and come in contact with people, isn't, hey, are they worshiping? The question is, are they worshiping the right thing? And so we, we, we live in a world where everybody's constantly, uh, constantly worship. People, um, people worship their families, right? People will worship their, their spouse and, and pay honor and homage, and they regard this object as sacred and keeping this, or, a, or, or getting a spouse. Uh, we live in a culture, and this is, this is so true, and I'm not getting off on this tangent, but it is 100% accurate, and it's it's really just completely and totally unhealthy. I mean, we've taken something that God has placed in our hearts, like God has given us a responsibility to love and care for our kids, but he has not called us to worship our children. But we live in a culture where we worship our children and to their demise, to our demise. And so constantly, people are continually, we constantly, so we worship money and we pursue it. We, we ascribe worth and value, and so we, t we, we will invest everything that we have and everything that we are to achieve this, to gain this, to get this, or to keep this. Because we've ascribed worth to that thing, whether it's, whether it's money or whether it's things. And so, you know, whether it's getting this house or having that car or presenting this image, or we live in a culture that worships, uh, worships celebrities. Like, people go bananas 
because somebody can sing good. Or people go bananas because they're really good at, at a sport. And this idea that like, hey, if I could meet them. And I you know, used to, it was like if I could get their autograph. But that's real. I don't think that's really a thing anymore. Like when I was a kid, like t- the idea of getting somebody's autograph. No, it's like now we have a cell phone. Like I want my picture because I don't want to. Like, I don't want to hold up an autograph for people to see. I want to post a picture so everybody can see that I was with this celebrity. And, and, and people will worship and idolize, uh, idolize people for things that they can do. So, again, the, I just want to, you know, I want to drive home the point before we continue this conversation that, that worship is not just a Christian thing. Worship is a, is a human thing. And so we've got to identify some things. The question is, are we worshiping the right thing and are we worshiping the right way? That's what we want to get to, to the bottom of. And the problem is, is so many people will settle for worshiping lesser things. And so there's such great joy and satisfaction found in the one that we were created for. In worshiping the one that we were designed to worship. Listen to what Isaiah says in in Isaiah chapter 43, verse 7, and then in in verse 21. It says, everyone who is called by my name, who is created for my glory, whom I formed and made. And then he says down in verse 21, he says, the people whom I formed for myself, that they might declare my praise. And so that, that we are created to worship, but we're not just created to worship anything or anyone. We're created to worship a specific, pur- there's a specific purpose and a reason. He's saying, hey, you are formed, you are created for my glory. You are created to sing my praise and declare my praise to the world around us. And so we can see that so clearly that everybody's created to worship. It's just making sure that we're creating, uh, we're worshiping the right thing in the right way so tonight what we're going to do is we're going to be back in Ezra and I know uh, last week Matt launched us into this discussion um, but what we're going to see in this passage tonight in chapter 3 is that this is this is what it looks like this is this is what what it looks like for us to live live out this worship to worship by obeying and we're also going to see in this passage of scripture tonight that the safest place to be is obediently worshiping God that is the safest place to be that is the that is the best place to be and so if you did not get a chance to if you weren't for some reason you couldn't be here last Wednesday I encourage you to go back you can go to the website and you can listen to uh, Pastor Matt from last week and I would encourage you to do that because he really laid some groundwork and some framework uh, as to what we're going to be discussing through this study. You need to know what's going on, what's led to the point that we find ourselves uh, here as we pick up the story tonight. But let me just give you a brief, let me give you a brief recap. You need to understand, here's what we need to understand, that in our Bible, Ezra and Nehemiah are two separate books, but they're one storyline. Okay, that's important for us to understand. And so all the things that are transpiring in, in, in ancient writings and texts, a, a lot of times it was just one, it was one book, it was one story. And so we've separated them for our scripture, but it is, it is one storyline. And so you can read Ezra through Nehemiah, and it is, it is one storyline. And so we pick up the story where Matt, you know, Matt spent some time laying the framework last week, is that God's people had been in captivity for 70 years in Babylon. 
Okay? And the reason why they had been in captivity is, was why? Well, it was their sin. They, they landed themselves in exile. They Because they had already been delivered to the promised land. They had experienced the fullness of that. And then they just couldn't get it right. And they just continued to rebel. They chased after other gods. And they found themselves in, a, in the land of exile in Babylon. And it was their fault because they chose sin over God. And so God promised after 70 years to, to bring them back. Matt referenced last week Jeremiah 29, 11. And so many people love that verse, and we post it, especially around graduation time. You know, it's like, for I know the plans I have for you, plans to prosper you, not to harm you. Well, that is 100% true. God was speaking this into his people while they were in exile. It didn't feel like God's plans were to prosper them because they were in the midst of exile and captivity. But God, he, he promised to bring them home, and that is where we find ourselves in this, in, in this story here. That the, the people of God are returning to Jerusalem. And so uh, just the way in which God was orchestrating that, and that's what Matt spent a ton of time talking about last week, was how God, it wasn't just like, all right, y'all can go home. Like he, he moved in a very specific way in a, in a pagan king to accomplish his purpose and, and to begin bringing his people home. And what we see here in the beginning of Ezra is this first wave of God's people returning from the exile. All right, and so we're, we're picking up the story there, and so the first wave of people have returned, and in chapter 2, they're all listed out, and nobody's names are Mary or John or Chris. Man, I'm just telling you, there's some, there's some whoppers, you know what I mean? Like it, I, Look, there's no way I'm going to tempt to read chapter 2. If you want to catch up, we're going to move into chapter 3. You go home tonight and you read chapter 2. And uh, I'll try to pronounce the names, the few names in chapter 3, and we'll, we'll see if we can get through it. But uh, so this is a list of the people that, are, that God is returning in this, uh, in this first wave. And, and what we got to understand is that, that they're returning to their hometowns. They're, so everything's on the outskirts of Jerusalem. And, and so they're scattered throughout Judah and they've returned to their hometowns. And what they're trying to do is they're trying to prepare some temporary accommodations. They're trying to get their homes kind of back in order. Because, look, when they left, it was left in shambles. Their homes were in shambles. The temple was in shambles. The wall around I me, mean, if you're familiar with the story of Nehemiah, I mean, what we see here in Ezra is, is the rebuilding of the temple but in Nehemiah, it's really the rebuilding of the wall and their protection in the land. But everything's demolished. There's nothing left. And so they're just trying to get some things in order. And then we're going to pick up the story in chapter 3. Then what we see is that they promptly gather. So they return, and then they promptly gather back in Jerusalem. Well, why? I mean, there's a lot of work to do in their homes. There's a lot of things they need to get in order. There's a lot of things that... But what they do is the people, like they get into the land, they're, they're like, they take care of a couple things, and then it's like, no, we need, to, we need to return back to Jerusalem. We've got some things we need to do. Well, what is it that they need to, what is it they need to do? So let's, let's pick up the story in Ezra chapter 3, starting in verse 1. Okay, when the seventh month came, and the children of Israel were in the towns, the people gathered as one man to Jerusalem. 
Then arose Jeshua, the son of Josadak, with his fellow priests, and Zerubbabel. Zerubbabel? Zerubbabel. Right? Why can't he just be Z? Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, with his kinsmen. And they built the altar of the, king, uh, of the God of Israel to offer burnt offerings on it, as it is written in the law of Moses, the man of God. They set the altar in its place, for fear was on them because of the peoples of the lands. And they offered burnt offerings on it to the Lord. Burnt offerings morning and evening. And they kept the feast of the booths, as it is written, and offered daily burnt offerings by number, according to the rule, as each day required. And after that, the regular burnt offerings, the offerings at the new moon, and at all the appointed feasts of the Lord, and at the offerings of everyone who made free will offering to the Lord. From the first day of the seventh month, they began to offer burnt offerings to the Lord. But the foundation of the temple of the Lord was not yet laid. Okay, let's unpack some things, okay? So first of all, you got to understand that for God's people... In Old Testament times, the seventh month of the year was a big deal. There was a lot going on. And so we see that when the seventh month came, they're like, okay, this is a big deal. And so on the, on the first day uh, of the seventh month, there was, uh, it was declared that they would have solemn rest. And the blast of the trumpets would declare, would declare this. On the tenth day of the seventh month was the, was the day of atonement. On the, on the first, uh, the fifteenth day of the seventh month I know it's a lot of numbers but that was the first day of this week-long festival of the booths we read about there that in this passage and so the festival of the booths we got to kind of have an understanding of what's going on here so the purpose for that was this reminder and so there was this command that God commanded his people so that they would remember what he had done and so when he had freed them from Egypt and brought them out of captivity there, and brought them and led them all those years throughout the wilderness, and delivered them to the promised land. See, the Feast of the Booths was a reminder of that time in the wilderness when God, He, was, he remained faithful to them. And so they would, they would remember, they would remember the, the fact that God had freed them. There was this exile, right? That's where we get Exodus. Like there was this Exodus from Egypt, and God was bringing them into the promised land. And so they would celebrate this, this feast because of that. But there's, there's a, in, this, in this story, you've got to realize that there's a, it's almost like a second exodus. And so because the people of God now had been in, in exile for, for 70 years. And now it's like, hey, we're celebrating this. We're remembering what God had done in the past. But we're also remembering what God just did. What he did for us. We were just in Babylon, and now we're not. And God is the one who paved a way. And so it's ancient history for them, but it's also something that they had experienced for themselves. And so what do they do when they get back? How do they begin? They begin with the right focus. Their focus immediately is worship. They placed a high priority on walking in obedience See, if you value something, if you ascribe honor and worth to something, you listen, right? You follow. And so they, God had made it clear that this was, this was important. 
And not just that. I mean, they, they put up the altar. They started giving burnt offerings and the Feast of Booths and all these other offerings and appointed feasts and all these things. Like They set up the altar because, so that they could worship in the way in which God had commanded for them to worship. So, but here's the question. I want you to think. They set up the altar. That's the very first thing that they did. They set up the altar. Why did they set up the altar? What's the purpose? Is it specifically because they wanted to walk in obedience? I mean, they're back in Jerusalem because they're stepping back in obedience. But like it says in the text in verse 3, it says exactly why they're back there and exactly why they set up the altar. It says, they set the altar in its place for fear was on them because of the people of the lands. So they're afraid. Stop and think for just a minute. They're afraid. Like their city had been in shambles. Their land is in shambles. Like people have just been able to come in and do whatever they want, whenever they want, however they want. And now they show up back on scene and they're a vulnerable people. They, they, don't, have, they don't have any, any protection. They don't have that. They don't have police. They don't, they don't have some big, strong military with fighter jets. They don't, they, they don't have a sinking today. They don't have ring doorbells that they get notified whenever somebody shows up at their house. They, they went and they started getting some things in order. Then they left their house and their possessions and their things behind. And they left and they went to Jerusalem to worship. They didn't have security cameras in place that notified them on their cell phone that somebody's in their house. Then they could pick up their cell phone and call 911 so somebody would show up and go take care of it. They didn't, they didn't have that, they, but they said, you know what, I, we're going we're gonna to do what God calls us to do. And they were scared. They were afraid. They knew that they were in a very vulnerable position. They understood that. They didn't have the things that we have. And yet, they still walked in obedience and came to worship, not knowing. But what did they do? It says they set up the altar because they were afraid. Now, I don't know about you, but that doesn't make sense. Stop and think about it. That doesn't make sense. If I'm afraid, then I'm probably going to start by staying home. And I'm going to guard my stuff. And I'm Right? Like, that makes sense. If I'm afraid, then what we're going to do is we're going we're gonna to build an army. So that we can protect ourselves. That's where we're going to begin. We're going to start by, by building up this army. We're going to make some weapons. We're going like, to do things that make sense. Because this doesn't make, this doesn't make sense. But this is, this is what they do. You know, if it was us just thinking about, okay, well, if the story of, of Ezra and Nehemiah is one storyline, doesn't it make sense? The, the wall, so, so in Nehemiah, they rebuild the wall. Why did they rebuild the wall? Because the wall was protection. It would keep people out. It gave them an advantage. So when people would, would wouldn't it make sense to, hey, we're not going to go and worship. Let's start, with the, let's start with, the, with the wall. But that's not what they do. And here's what I would say. I would say it's better to obey God than to worship. Uh, I'm sorry. It's better to obey God and worship him than do what makes sense. That's 100% accurate. And that is 100% the, 
what the people did, what they did here. And here's the danger. We have to be careful that we don't only pursue things that make sense to us. That, that seem logical to us because we, what we try to do, now we wouldn't say this, but we do this. What we try to do is we try to uh, explain obedience. And when, when obedience is understandable, when obedience can be explained, when obedience makes sense, then we will do that thing. But if it doesn't make sense, because it doesn't make sense here, but if it doesn't make sense and it can't be explained, if God calls us to do something that does not make sense, then what we do is we try to just justify our way out of doing it. We start explaining, like, well, hold on. Well, you know, I've got, I've got this, and if I went and did that, then that's going to, and how is, how is that going to affect this? And so we start asking all these questions and justifying in our minds, and we will explain, uh, we will justify ourselves out of following God and doing what he's calling us to do, the way in which he's calling us uh, to do it. We can't, we can't do that. I, I remember, um, and this is not, this is by no means to, to toot my own horn, but I, I can remember when God was calling me to ministry, and I was, you know, I'd, I'd been at the fire department for 14 years. I mean, I could see retirement on the horizon. You know what I mean? I mean, I'm still 10 years away, but I could see it on the horizon. And I'm like, okay, well, what made sense to me? And I knew that God was calling me to more. And I can remember, man, I can remember that struggle, that inner battle. And I can remember, this is what made sense to me. It's only 10 years. I was already on staff just working part-time at the church. And at the time, I was leading student ministry. But I was at the fire department. Now, that's two full-time jobs. <laughs> I was going crazy. And my wife was going crazy. But the, the point is, it's like, it made sense that, hey, I'm going to finish my time at the fire department. That makes sense. And then I'll surrender to the ministry. The problem is, is God was calling me to surrender to the ministry then. And so I had a decision to make. Am I going to do what makes sense? Because, you know, I have to plan for the future. I have to prepare for the future. And God just impressed upon me. It's like, hey, you got a better retirement plan. Invest your life in what I'm calling you to invest your life in. And so I can remember, I mean, I, I, I've shared this story. I don't know if I've shared it here, but I can remember that my last day at the fire department, I pulled out of the fire department. I was sobbing. I'm talking snot bubbles. And I can remember I said this to God as I'm crying, driving down the road. I hope you're right. Because <laughs> I just left everything. You, you know, it didn't make sense. And that's happened a, a, a thousand different ways, a thousand different times. And if you're genuinely following God, you know what I'm talking about. I don't have to give you an example. I don't have to, you know those moments when it doesn't make sense, when the world would say you're crazy, when, when people would look at you and think, like, what's going on? This, is, this should be true for every believer, not just people who are called to ministry. And so, like, we're... People say all the time, well, Christianity's boring. Well, then you're not following Jesus because Jesus calls us to do things that don't make sense. And he calls us to step out in faith and do things that, that require faith, that are hard things that, that don't make sense. And so why did they leave? Why did they leave their houses? Why did they go back? they just gotten back. Why are they leaving all that? They left to obey God. Why are they why are they acting this way? Why aren't they trying to protect 
themselves? Why aren't they trying to protect their homes? Why aren't they trying to protect their, their wives and their kids? Here's, here's my answer. This, this is the end. They are. They're just not doing it the way that makes sense. They're not doing it the way that, that we you know, might think that they should. But they are doing that very thing. They are protecting themselves, their homes, their wives, their kids. There's a, um, there's a song that's been out for a while now, and it's really, there's only two lines, and it's just over and over and over and over again. And, and, and it really just it rings true what we're talking about. It says, this is how I fight my battles. And it just says, this is how I fight my battle. It may look like I'm surrounded, but I'm surrounded by you. And this is how I fight my battles. And what's the way in which, the, the, what are we singing? It's, it's worship. It's praise. It says worship is a, is a weapon. Psalm 149.6. I don't have that on your guide, but if you want to write that down, that is, that is a key verse. You go look it up, and it's, it is declaring that worship in the throat of God's people is a weapon. Is a weapon. This is how we fight our battles. So instead of seeking protection, the people of God chose to seek the protector. They chose to seek the protector instead of seeking protection. And by seeking the protector, they got protection. See, they chose to seek Yahweh in worship because they feared, they had fear for the people around them. So they, they sought God. And so I was just thinking this week as I've been wrestling with this text I started thinking about like what do we do when we find ourselves fearful where do we run what do we what do we do when we're in a situation where inflation is stupid that's where we are but like when the economy when the economy crashes you know or the economy starts to take this turn and fear starts to settle in people's hearts it's a real thing what, what do people do? What's the, what's the thing that makes sense? Is it to pull our money out of the stock market? Is, to, is it to stash as much money as we can into savings? Is it start to begin buying things that we can barter those things because money's no longer going to have its value? Like, what do we do? What, what are the actions that occur out of this fear that begins to take place in our hearts? Or when, you know, we're just coming off of an election last week. And so, like, when things don't necessarily go the way we think they are, and we become fearful that, that the country is headed in the wrong direction, I mean, what do we do? Do we seek to gain more information, uh, read more news articles, watch more uh, of this news channel? Or, you know what I'm saying? Do we go stockpile and fill our pantry? Like, wh- what do we do in those moments when fear begins to settle in the hearts, uh, in our hearts? What do we find in our safety and security in? Because this is another truth. It's better to obey God and worship Him than to seek safety and security. Now, I would say safety and security in in other things. But it's better to, to obey and worship God than to seek safety and security. They know, the people here know where safety originates. And safety does not originate in numbers. It doesn't originate in might. 
contrary to how we feel and how we oftentimes approach things. Like, let's just be honest. We want to, and I don't know, maybe it's a guy thing, maybe it's a, maybe it's a girl thing, but like as God, like we just want to fix the problem. We, we naturally, like we want to, we want to fix the problem. Well, that, that's not what the people of God did here. And so then the question is, is th- that I have for us is, what is most common in our culture? What is most commonly sought after for safety and security? What do we seek after in our culture for safety and security? Now we seek after a lot of things, and so sometimes that's uh, sometimes that's relationships. Uh, sometimes that's you know if I'm if I'm healthy, if I'm in good health, then I feel safe and secure. Um, maybe maybe it is politics. You know what I mean? As long as uh, as long as the country's red or as long as the country's blue, then we're safe and we're secure. Um, we, we seek safety and security in a lot of things. But I think, especially for the American culture and the world we live in today, it's money, 100%. See, we live in a culture where people don't really need God because they have everything. That's, that's the world we live in. And so, like, hey, as long as my, my bank account is full, as long as I have all these nice things and these trinkets and these toys, and I have a nice house and I have a nice car, and, like, I have all these things, I'm going to find my safety and security in that. And I'm going to lean on that for safety and security. And as long as I have those things, then I'm good. And I can walk around with my head up high, and I can walk around and feel like, hey, I've got it together. But the moment that those things begin to crash or to crack or to crumble, then I find myself in trouble. But the truth is, is we live in a culture that it really is about money. And we find ourselves just satisfied. We find our security in money and things. We find our value in money and things. We find our happiness in money and things. And we live in a a world that, that doesn't need God. And for us, as for God's people, like we've got to be careful. Because if we're not, we'll begin to find safety and security in things other than God. See, the exiles learned what they could and could not trust in. They learned that they could only trust in God, and that led to obedience to him. Here's the thing. They had to learn that lesson the hard way. I mean, that's what led them to exile is because they began to trust in other things. They began to follow other things. They began to pursue. They placed value in other things, and they followed after those things. So they understood at this point, like they get it. They know where that road takes them. And they're like, I'm not doing that again. And so they pursue and know that the only thing that they can trust in is God. All right? Let's pick up in verse 7. Verse 7. So the people, they gave money to the masons and the carpenters and food and drink and oil to the Sidonians and the Tyrians. To bring cedar trees to, uh, from Lebanon to the sea, to Joppa, according to the grant that had, been, uh, had come from Cyrus, king of Persia. Verse 8. Now in the second year after their coming, in the house of the God at Jerusalem, in the second month, Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and Jeshua, the son of Josedak, made a beginning, together with the rest of their kinsmen, the priests and the Levites, and all who had come to Jerusalem, Uh, from captivity they appointed the levites from 20 years old and upward to supervise the work of the house of the lord and jeshua uh, with his sons and his brothers and cadmiel and his sons the sons of judah 
together supervised the workmen in the house of God, along with the sons of Henadad and the Levites, their sons and brothers. And when the builders laid the foundation of the temple of the Lord, the priests and their vestments came forward with trumpets, and the Levites, the sons of Asaph, with cymbals to praise the Lord according to the directions of, uh, of David, king of Israel. And they sang responsibly, praising and giving thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever toward Israel. And all the people shouted with a great shout, and they praised the Lord because of the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid. So here's what we see. Here's what we see. We see that the initial phase uh, is complete. And so they, they set the altar in place, and they began to just uh, offer sacrifices for their sin. And they understood that this was, this was an act of worship, and they're honoring and, and, and obeying these, these feasts and, and doing these things. And then they're like, okay, it's time to start building the temple. And two years had passed. So when you, when you see in verse uh, 8 where it says, now in the second year after their coming, two years had passed. So they, it took some time for their, to get the, the materials that they needed, to get things in place so that they could begin to rebuild the, rebuild the temple. But the time had come. And now they're all gathered and they're all working together. And so the initial phase is complete. The foundation for the temple that had been destroyed is now laid. And they are pumped. They are excited. Like they are, and it, and it leads to their natural response here is to just praise God. That's what they, that's what they do. And that's how I feel, supposedly, we're supposed to pour concrete on the fellowship hall this week. Like that's, that's what we need to be doing right there because it has been forever. It feels like it's been forever. Like when Lyle told me that, I was like, man, we're about to, do some Ezra 3 stuff, what we're going to do. So if you're here Sunday and the slab's out there, we're all going to meet in between services and we're just going to have a good old worship session, okay, because the foundation has been laid. But they're excited. Man, it's been a long time coming. It's been a long time coming. And they, they're looking here and they're like, what, what? And they are, they are excited. And they're excited about the fact that they're saying, like, look what God, not only what God is accomplishing, but look what God was accomplishing through them. Like, look what God is accomplishing. And so, in this passage, we see a few things. We see the people of God here. We see them looking back. We see them looking around. And we see them looking ahead. They're reminded. I mean, you think about these feasts. The, perfect, the purpose of these feasts that they did, the Feast of the Booths and all the other feasts that they would do, it was a reminder of the faithfulness of the God that they served. It was, a, it was purposefully to look back at the faithfulness of God. So they could be reminded that God has always been faithful and he's going to continue to be faithful. And so they look around and they're like, hold on, God's still faithful. He brought us out of captivity. He brought us out of exile. He brought us here. And look what God is doing among us, in and through and around us. The temple foundation has been laid. And they're looking forward to the fact that, hey, that th this isn't the end. This is just the foundation. And if God has been working and is working, he's going to continue to work. And we're going to rebuild the temple. God's going to continue to do great things in and through us. And so they're looking back. They're looking around. They're looking ahead. And all of this led to worship. That was the natural response to all of this. So here's, here's what I want us to talk about. I want us to talk about a few 
different areas and ways in which the people of God worship. We worship through song. Man, thinking about looking back, looking around, and looking at ahead. Like, when the, when the people of God, when we gather together, we're part of these grand assemblies that have been singing the praises of God since the beginning of time. Like, it, it didn't start with us. The people of God have been singing His praises for a very long time. And then we, we look around at the fact that we get to do this together. That we're not sitting alone. Now, I, I love sitting alone. I, I love driving down the road with my hand out the window, praising God. Like, I love it. But, man, I love singing with the people of, of God. And then we look forward to one day. Man, I don't know if you've ever been in a place where just, just worship is, is beyond anything that you can imagine. In those moments, I always think, like, this isn't even scratching the surface. I mean, there's coming a day. There's coming a day. Well, we are going to be worshiping. You know what I mean? There's no, there's no barriers. There's no sin barrier. There's no brokenness barrier. There's no I'm worried about who's around me barrier. There's no I'm thinking about this, focus on this. Like there's nothing but Jesus, and we are hands high worshiping him. Like we look forward to those things. And so we look back, we look around, we look ahead. We worship through prayer. We worship through prayer. And it's through prayer that we're reminded of what God has done. I, I uh, was reading, I think, it was, I think it was last week, Melissa Hogue posted a, uh, she posted on Facebook, and uh, if you know Melissa's story, or really the story of her son Michael back uh, a long time ago, uh, but she, he, was, he was in an accident that we really, we didn't know if he was going was gonna to make it. She, she posted this, she said, why do I keep a prayer journal? It allows me to look in the rearview mirror and see how God was and is working. She said, on September 23rd, 2014, there's only one entry in my journal. God, what are you preparing me for? Nine days later, this was before the accident with Michael. Nine days later, on October 2nd, 2014, I would get my answer. She says, if you don't know my son's story, take a listen and be encouraged. If you feel waiting on God is hard, or you're asking why, or questioning His purpose, see how God uses obstacles and times in the wilderness to shape our faith and sharpen our character. And she referenced James 1-2, counted all joy, and then the link to Michael's stories there. But, but it was through that prayer journal. She's looking, she's looking back, and she can be reminded through, through her prayers, like, the faithfulness of God. That nine days before her son would experience the most traumatic accident in her, in her life, and for sure his life, like, God was preparing her for that. And she's able to reflect back and to think about it as she was praying in that season. That, that we're reminded in our current season that we're not just lifting up prayers to, to an empty room. Like, that God, the God of the universe, hears his people. Like, he cares about he cares about us and, and wants us to, to come to Him. That, that our prayers, like, they have implication on what's going on around us and what's going to take place in the future. We worship through, we worship through the Word. That, that the Word of God has sustained His people for centuries. That the Word of God is living and active. 
And, and it's been living and active. And it's been working out his purposes and his plans and his people for a long time. And he's continuing to, to do that. that. That we're sustained by his word. And that, that in this moment, in this time, in our current season, that we, we are to hunger, to, to hunger for his word. And to hunger to hear God's voice. To hunger to hear his will and to know his will. And to experience, to experience that. And then to know that in the future that his word is fulfilled, that we win, that, that Jesus has declared the victory, and he's coming back in the same, not the same way he came the first time, but he's coming back. He's going to return, but we can look back to the fact that he came, and we can look forward to the fact that he's going to return again. We win because Jesus wins. We worship through giving. We worship through giving. Man, we reflect back on what Jesus has done in our life. And we realize and we're reminded like it, he's been so he's been so gracious to us that that we look back on what he's what he's given for us. How could we not be the most generous people? On planet earth because the God of the universe has been so generous to us and then we look around and realize hey we get to participate with God stop and think about that we spend a lot of money on a lot of things there's a difference between spending money and investing money and we get to invest our time our money our energy our blood our sweat our tears, we get to invest that. We get to participate with God and invest that in kingdom things. God's not trying to take something from us. He's not, he doesn't, that's not what he's doing. He's got something for us. He's saying, hey, you're going to spend your money. You got your choice. You can, you can spend it on things that are going to pass or you can invest it in something that's going to last forever. And we get the opportunity to join with him and participate in, in building the kingdom of God and investing and leaving a legacy. I just sometimes I think about the fact that hey, I'll, we get to invest our time, we get to invest our energy, we get to invest our things, we get to invest our money. That long after we're gone, that we've invested in something that's leaving a legacy for the next generation and the generations to come. As we invest in people and we invest in kingdom things. And so even after we're gone, like we can still continue to have an impact on what God is doing here. Man, that's good stuff. That is so good. We worship through the Lord's Supper. That's what the Lord's Supper is all about. It's not just some ritual. It's, not, it's just not just a cup and a wafer. Like that, that's, not what it, that's not what it is. We're, we're remembering what Christ accomplished we're looking back to the blood that was spilt so that we could have life. We're looking back to what, what Jesus did and what we could never do for ourselves. And we're looking forward to the Lamb's table that we're going we're gonna to have with Him in heaven. That this isn't the end. This isn't the way it's always going to be. Like we're, we're not always going to be here. And so that's what the Lord's Supper is all about. It's about looking back and, and looking forward. And it really just is summed up like this. We worship through obedience. We worship through obedience. And we've, we've seen how God has worked 
through our obedience in the past. Man, and that should spur us on to want to continue to walk in obedience today. We look back at those things and we, we step out in obedience today. And I can promise you as long as I'm preaching here, you're going to hear me say this a hundred thousand times. Our obedience today is connected to our obedience tomorrow. What we do today has huge implications not only on today, but tomorrow. And the same thing is true. Disobedience today leads to disobedience tomorrow. And so, so what we do today, it matters, and we step out. So we're able to look back. We're able to step out in obedience today, knowing that that's leading us down the path of obedience. And I don't know where tomorrow leads. I don't know where next year leads. I don't, I don't need to know that. I need to know what God wants me to do today and step out on obedience. I don't need to know all that. I know the author. That's enough. And that's what the people of God are doing here. It didn't make sense. But they didn't find safety and security in in those things or in what made sense. And And then I would say this, that we're meant to worship together. We're meant to do this together. That we can accomplish so much more together. If you look in all of chapter 3, there is just this picture of unity. There is a picture of unity. It starts out from the very first verse. It says, when the seventh month came, the children of Israel were in towns. The people gathered as one man to Jerusalem. They were gathered as one. Well, how did they accomplish? They, they, they were gathered as one in Jerusalem. They worshiped as one in Jerusalem. They b- rebuilt the foundation of the temple as one in Jerusalem. The, the accomplishment and the things that they did, it wasn't about them accomplishing these things individually. It was about them accomplishing these things together. And that we don't just get to do the things of God. We get to do the things of God together. I, I remember, um, you know, when we gathered up, and, and Matt referenced this in the video we saw this past Sunday about the fall festival. But I remember when we gathered up the fall festival to, to pray before, uh, before the community came out. And you just looked around and there was just a sea of Michael Memorial people. And really it's not Michael Memorial. It's just kingdom people. Servants of God gathered together for kingdom purposes. And it's just like, hey, th- there's no way. There's no way. There's no way if one person shows up. There's no way. How, how in the world does fall festival take place if it's just you? If it's just you, how, how do you do that? Yeah, you, we're going to have a kingdom impact individually, but guess what? We, we're a part of a, a bigger story that God is accomplishing kingdom purposes through us together. Thinking about missions. Like, we don't go individually on mission trips. We send out mission teams. We do this together. And then the beautiful part of that, on top of that, is that we have I sin. That, that not everybody goes on the team But we all get to give to the sending of those that are going on mission. And so we're participating in all of this together. And so it's not just one person. There's people that are able to go on mission because of the faithfulness of the people of this fellowship giving to that. And so together we're able to go and do things that we couldn't do on our own. Thinking about um, how many times, like, so there are many of the community groups in in this church will, will, they'll focus in on, uh, a family in need, and they'll do Christmas for a family in need around the holidays. Uh, so many of you will gather together with your community groups or just a, a group of friends, and you'll, you'll go out to eat, and you'll all just 
just bless the socks off of some server because you're all going to put your money together and just go above and beyond to tip, tip them in a, in a way that is just going to have huge implications on their lives. Like all these things. But yes, we could do those things individually, but when we do it together, it just, it's, it's bigger. We, we accomplish. You, you see what I'm saying? Like, and so it's, it's, we get to do this together. And so uh, we set our differences aside for the kingdom, and we worship together through obedience. In, uh, in verse 11, the, the people are singing, For he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever toward Israel. That God is good, and his love endures forever. And, and he's been faithful in that distant past. He's been faithful in their recent past. He's been faithful in their current situation. And they can rest assured and trust that he's going to be faithful in the future. And what happens in this moment? The natural response is worship. All right, let's finish this out. Verse 12. But many of the priests and the Levites and heads of fathers' houses, old men who had seen the first house, wept with a loud voice when they saw the foundation of this house being laid, though many shouted aloud for joy, so that the people could not distinguish the sound of the joyful shout from the sound of the people's weeping. For the people shouted with a great shout, and the sound was heard from far away so we got we got excitement right because the foundation has been laid and people are they're they're rising up and we're singing and we're singing this from verse 11 and there's these shouts of of joy but in the midst of that there's crying well why why is there crying who who is crying the old folks those who had been around to see and experience the temple before it had been destroyed. So, so they were around before the exile. And then they were carried off in captivity to Babylon. And now they're able to come back. And now they see Jerusalem and it's not the same Jerusalem. And so they've, they've returned. And so they saw, now most of the people that returned, they haven't, they didn't know. They, were, they came along after. They, they were born into exile. They never saw it or knew anything, but there's a group of people who had seen before. They had experienced before. Here's the next question. Why are they crying? Why are they crying? It doesn't say. I mean, we can come to our own conclusions. I mean, are they crying because there's disappointment? Here's, here's three things that I thought of today, and these are just my thoughts. It, the text doesn't say. But I think these are some things that would be real. I think that probably in the midst of the crying, there was some of all three of these going on. And I think it relates to, to where we are today as well. I think there were some crying because they saw the foundation and they thought to themselves that it wasn't going to be as good as it was before. I think there were some people that they, they saw God working, but they still couldn't trust that it was going to be as good as it was before because it wasn't going to be the same. And we just, they just wanted it to be the same. They wanted to have what they had before. And now, yes, we're back in the land, but everything's destroyed. And now we're building this foundation. But would you look at it? Would you look at it? And they're looking around, and I think they're probably thinking, okay, well, man, 
it's not going to be the same. And I think that there was this level of some, on some of them not trusting that God was going to be faithful. I think there were probably some people in, in this group that these tears and these weeping and this wailing were, were tears of joy. I, I, I think that there were, there were people that they weren't just worshiping anywhere. They were worshiping there. They, they had seen it. They had experienced. They knew what it was like. And then they were carried off into captivity. And they probably thought, we'll never get back there. Like, we'll, we'll never go home. We'll never see that again. I'm going to die in Babylon. That's where I'm going to die. And then God delivers them and brings them out of exile back home. They weren't just worshiping anywhere. They were worshiping there. And they thought that they, that they would never see that again. And they realized there was a time in their life where they completely and totally took that for granted. And they, they didn't realize what they had until it was gone. And now that it's gone, and now that they've been returned and they've, they've, they've got it back, they're like, I'm not taking this place for granted ever again. And I think we do that too. I think we oftentimes take for granted the moments that we get to gather together. I think a, a lot of times we'll just show up here. We haven't given any thought um, to preparing our hearts for worship. We haven't given any thought to um, you know, preparing our hearts for what, asking God to speak to us or, you, you know what I mean? Like looking seriously, like on the edge of our seats to, to hear what God has to say for us. We just haphazardly stumble into the sanctuary and expect, you know, we just take it for granted that we're in a place where God speaks and God's moving and God's working. We just take it for granted because we think, well, that's the way it's been and that's the way it's going to be. And that's not always the case. And so we should never take our time for granted. There's a lot of people around the world they don't get to do this. They don't get to do this. They gather in little rooms and whisper scripture because if they're caught, they're going to jail or they're going to lose their life. And we get the freedom to gather together. And I think a lot of times we take that for, we take that for granted. Corporate worship together is a, is a gift. And then I think there's a group here that um, they're broken over their sin. They understood more than anybody that sin brings destruction. Sin brings destruction. See, the reason, and they know this to be true because it impacted them personally, that they at one time had been here. They had seen it. They had seen the temple. They had worshipped in the temple. They had been there. They had done and. and they realized that for 70 years they didn't do that. And the reason why they couldn't do that is because their sin. And not only this, our sin doesn't just impact us. Their sin impacted all these, all these young, the younger generation. They're all singing and they're excited and they're praising Jesus. And I believe that there's some older guys and older women that they're looking there going, they've never seen this or experienced this and it's because of us. It's because of us. Because our sin doesn't just affect and impact us. It affects and impacts the, the people around us. And because of their sin, it impacted this other generation. And this was a harsh reminder. As glorious and as good as it was, it was a harsh reminder of what led them to captivity. And what brought them to this place. That they were responsible. That they were responsible. And so, you know, we can't be 100% sure but this is what we are sure of. We are sure 
that their worship can be heard from far away. That's what, that's what it says in verse, uh, in verse 13 at the end. And the sound was heard far away. I think this is, I think this is key information for us. Who, who heard their worship? All the people they were afraid of. See, our worship is communicating something about our view of God to the world around us. That's not on your handout, but you can write it down. Our worship, the way in which we worship is communicating something to the, to the world around us about our view of God. That is 100% accurate. Here's, here's two points I want to leave us with for tonight in light of what we talked about. Number one, the object of our worship matters. The object of our worship matters. What was the object of these people? What was the object of their worship? It was God. Everything about it was centered around God. It was about God. It was about um, the, the way in which he had commanded them to worship. They're, they were worshiping the right thing. And we can't make worship about us. Worship has got to be about God. It's not about our preferences. It's not about... Uh, how we're comfortable worshiping or what makes us comfortable. It's not about our opinions about what worship is. It's not about what our opinions about what worship should like. It's about God. It's not about our ideas um, for safety and security. It's not about what makes sense to us. It's not about, it's not about us. It's not about us. Worship is not about us. It's about obedience to the one who created us for his glory to worship him. It's all about worshiping the one true God. That's what it is about. So the object of our worship matters and the way in which we worship matters. How do these people worship? If you read through this text, you, you can go home after you read chapter 2 and pronounce all those names right. You can read chapter 3 again. And uh, if you look in, how did, how did they worship? If you look in verse 3, it says, they worshiped as it is written in the law of Moses, the man of God. In verse 4 it says, they did it, they kept the feast of booths and burnt offerings as each day required by the word of God. In verse 5, they uh, upheld the appointed feast of the Lord. Uh, verse 6, they did it on the first day of the seventh month. They began to offer burnt offerings to the Lord. They did it according to God's way. In, in verse 10, when they're, when they're singing and what they're singing, well, what did they do? They did it. They praised the Lord according to the directions of David, king of Israel. Like they, they worshiped the right way. They didn't just worship the right one. They worshiped the right way. The way in which God has called us to, to worship. And so it can't be defined by us. It's got to be defined by God and through his word. And, and I want to go back to the fact that, hey, we're communicating something with our, about our view of God and the way in which we worship. We should be showing the world that, that is around us. We should be showing the world that there's a God in the church worth following. We should be declaring that with our mouths, with our songs, with our actions. We, you know how we declare that? By following him. That's, that's how we declare that. And so we, we should be declaring to the world around us that there's a God in the church that's worth following. And you know how they can see that is by us actually following him in obedience. And that's what the people did here. That's what they did. And so here's, here's what I want us to do. 
I want to just ask a few questions as we take a little worship inventory. Because here's, here's the thing. Anything that competes against God for our affections, uh, for the affections of our heart, is a thief. And it's stealing worship that was intended for him. So, here's some fun questions. Are you more devoted to your, to your thing, whatever that is, than you are to God? Are you more devoted to your, to your hobby? Are you more devoted to your job? Are you more devoted to, I don't know, you fill in the blank. Are you more devoted to your thing, more devoted to your children, more devoted to, like, that's a good question to ask. Number two, does vanity and promoting an image flow more naturally than promoting Christ? You know, are we more interested in how we look to the world around us, presenting ourselves and our image a certain way? Are we more uh, devoted and, and more interested in, in the things that we have? And, and you know what I'm saying? Like, is it, does vanity and promoting an image flow more naturally than promoting our Savior? Number three, do you want money or things more than you want God? This is how you know you can answer that. Our time will tell what we really love. How we spend our time will really tell what we love. What are, we, what are, we, are you pursuing things of this world more than you're pursuing Christ? Look, they're, they're, the, the danger is that they would be, they're thieves. These things are thieves. Are you more passionate about your team than you are in worship for the creator of the universe? And we'll come in here and we'll mumble some songs. And I'm not saying there's anything wrong with being passionate about your team. I feel like if you're going to support them, you should be all in on them. Right? But the thing is, is we'll scream and we'll hoot and holler and we'll sit on the edge of our seat and we'll bite our fingernails because we're anxious. Are they going to win? Are they going to? And man, they score. They kick the winning field goal. They hit the home run. Like, and we jump and we scream and we hoop and we holler and then we walk in this place and we mumble words. I'm not saying you shouldn't be passionate about supporting your teams. I'm saying you should be more passionate about worshiping the creator of the universe. Man, I can tell you, one of the things I love to do is I love to go to the home of grace and worship with those men. Man, I am just telling you, there no holding back. It is, it is just complete and total abandonment, just worshiping the Creator. I remember when we were in Dominican this year, and uh, I took a video of it. I probably should have played it, but I'm just telling you, man, that, it, was, it, was just, it was different. It was just different. It was something very, very special. I remember just walking away from that going, man. It has been good to worship with them. And so we shouldn't be more passionate about, uh, about our teams or our things or whatever it is than we are in worship to God. Is time on our phone or social media more valuable than our relationship with God? Do we invest more time in, in things that are just meaningless? Worship says, I love you, God, more than I love these trinkets. That's what worship says. And so back to the, to the big idea. It's nothing new. We just circle back around. Worship is central to life with God. It is, it is this, this picture of, Lord, take this heart that you purchased at a high price. I'm offering it back to you. This won't be on the screen, but I want to 
I want to uh, read you Romans 12.1 as we close out our time. Paul says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living sacrifice. See, what did the people do when they came into the, into the land? They set up the altar, and they began to sacrifice to God as an act of worship. And Paul says, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your reasonable worship. It just makes sense. How could we not offer our lives back in worship in light of everything that God has done? What does that look like? Where does that lead us? doesn't matter. It's not about us. It's not about us. Let me pray. God, thank you for, thank you for tonight. Thank you for your word. And um, I just pray that you help us. It's so easy.